All right, I want to talk with you this morning about the phrase of Jesus, the salt of the earth. And I will warn you very clearly, uh, this is a weird sermon. Some of you are going to hate it. Uh, and I'm, it's not probably not even finished as far as it's thought. Because I can tell you, I don't know exactly what to think about some of this. I put together just something that's been troubling me. And so I put it together under this title of You Are the Salt of the Earth. And you'll have to think about what you think about, what you conclusions you would come to. Maybe you have a different application of these things or different understanding of events that are going on around us. And that's okay. But I do want you to think about the choices that are set before us now as Christians in this, in this day and time. Let's go over to that passage in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, where this phrase is found. Jesus here, we talked a couple weeks ago about persecution and what persecution would be like and what to, when do it, what to expect in persecution. You can go back and listen to that sermon on the, on our website. We are just Christians if you haven't listened to it. See what you think. But Jesus says this here in verse 10 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Persecuted is from the Greek word which means to chase. To hound down is the idea. To hunt down. And, and, and to hurt someone. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now Peter says, don't let anybody suffer among you who is a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. That's not, that's suffering, but that's not the kind of suffering I'm, but if anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. That's the persecution. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Now this isn't like the other Beatitudes. You recognize these are the be, at the end of the Beatitudes. Bless the poor in spirit, bless the meek and all that. Here he's saying, bless are you when you're persecuted and people hate you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then he says, next verse, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor or savor, how shall it be seasoned? If salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men. I think the key word there is so. Let your light so shine in this way before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now I can guarantee you based on the verse on persecution just before this, he's not saying that when you do good things, everybody's going to like you and praise you. Because why are they hounding and persecuting these Christians he warns them about? Well, it's because they're doing good things. and they The world hates that. But there are some who will see your good works that you do and they will glorify God. So we could analyze all these verses in a more detail, but I, I want to talk about a, a book or that was out a few years ago. You probably have even heard of it before. It's called the, the Benedict Option. Now, I'm not going to talk about the book except to mention it. Yeah. Anybody ever heard of the Benedict Option by a man named Ron Dreyer? He's an evangelical. Basically, he goes back into history and says that because of the way the... American culture is now and Western culture and the 
the power that is being wielded over us by secular authorities and the way we're hated around in the country. Because we've gone from being we Christians, and I'm, t- I'm using the word Christian today in a very generic sense, not in the New Testament sense exactly, but in the broad sense of not a Muslim, okay, not a Buddhist, but in the broad sense. Way we've gone from being accepted now to hated. Some another fellow said we've gone into the negative phase. Christianity is viewed extremely negatively by huge sections of our culture, especially by those in power in all the different organizations, not just government, but other powerful organizations in our culture. If you saw the Academy Awards the other night, and I didn't, so I'm just going on what I've heard, do you think Christianity is very well loved by those powerful people? I don't think so. Okay? Uh, not at all. It's hated. So, we've gone to, the, we're in a very negative place, and, and Ron Dreher in the Benedict Option says that the way that this was treated in years past by Christians is they retreated into cloisters. This is how monasticism developed, the idea of monasteries where people went apart in the mountains or wilderness to live away from the world and live Christian lives and be holy in their separate little communities. All over the world this developed. And so he says it's time for Christians to develop their own systems of things, their own communities, their own ways of doing things that is apart and separate from the common culture. Now, I may be oversimplifying, and I don't mean to misrepresent the man's book, but that is the choice of a Benedict, named after a so-called Saint Benedict. I don't believe in the Roman Catholic saints, but that's the name that's been given so we can communicate about it. That's why it doesn't say Saint Benedict up here. Okay, it's just the Benedict option. His name was Benedict. He was a, the monk who kind of began monk, monkism, as it were, and separation. And that's the option that's been set before a lot of Christians in our society and being contemplated at pretty high levels around the world. And, and it's an option that's always been there for Christians. Christians have always kind of separated themselves. I grew up in a very... Uh, hmm... There's a lot of words I could use to describe my upbringing in Christianity, but even in my own mind as a young person, you know, my my mother's family who were New Testament Christians were Kentucky hillbillies. They were looked down on by the people around them in Ohio and other places because they were so backward and poor, common laborers, uneducated, literally uneducated. And they ate funny food and had funny accents. They were looked down on by the people around them. And and the church I was brought up in was very conservative, even by standards of 1955 and 1965. Very conservative even there. And so I, and, and the way that I heard people talk about society in general, I felt that isolated that that we were we were not like everybody else around us isolated a little bit religiously and culturally to a large degree when i went to the school that i went to elementary school it was uh, it was in a city that was old rich money i mean we're talking rich people that were so rich they didn't even know that they were rich in glendale ohio it's still rich 150 year old houses people uh, they had servants. And we're living in an 800 square foot house, the six of us, you know. 
and, and uh, my father was doing, he, he had a high school education, so he was doing better. His family were a bunch of immigrants. They were doing, they were outsiders. So when I was in school with these other kids, I felt like a, like a nobody, an outsider. And, and I'm going to go to my 50th reunion, 51st reunion, if I can, later this spring, and I'll still be an outsider. I'll be handsomer and smarter than all those guys. And I have a better wife and a better life than they do. I can guarantee you that. I know that already. But to them, I'm just an outsider and I'll just be that crippled boy and, you know, whatever, because I wasn't like them. So this is you grow up. And I, I associated some of this with Christianity to a little bit because part of what was that separation, I, I remember even back then, you know, getting and saying things in school that, from the Bible that my teachers looked. Gave me that look. And this was back in the 60s. These people are very high up liberal intellectuals in that community I grew up in. And I ain't, as they say. Okay? Now, the point is that that's always been an option for Christians to feel separated. And you should to some degree. Is that the right way to go, though? What's the Bible say about that? Well, we'll look at a moment. He, he says you're the salt of the earth. You're the lie of the one. Now, the point I remember hearing about this is how can salt be of any good when it's still in the salt shaker? Right? How can salt do any good when it's separate over here in its own little place and you don't, you don't actually use it on stuff? And that's a good point, right? But on the other hand, if you just throw salt all over the house and spread it around, it can, it loses its, its effectiveness. It needs to be together. It needs to be in a salt shaker in something that you can use to put it where it needs to be. Because salt doesn't belong on everything. It won't work on everything. It works on snails, by the way. I can tell you as a boy, I learned that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> magnifying glasses work good too. Anyway. I had to have so We didn't have the internet. You had to entertain yourself somehow. Anyway. The other option is the Boniface option. Back in the 700s, now, this is long after New Testament times. The church had already been corrupted, like Paul said it would, by grievous wolves entering in and corrupting the nature of the New Testament church from Bible times, establishing traditions. What we know of as the Catholic church was the predominant thing at, by the 700s for the most part. It's all anybody knew. And they had developed these systems of monks and priests and all those other unbiblical things. Well, there was this fellow who was a monk named Boniface. His Real name was Winfred. I don't know which is better, to be called Winfred or Boniface, but he ended up with the name Boniface as a monk. And he was sent up into German, what we now call Germany. Now, the, my ancestors that are German at, in the 700s, these people were barbarians. There was cannibalism. There was rape and pillaging. Uh, these people worshipped every kind of god you can think of. They were brutal people, their Germanic tribes were. Brutal. And they remained that way down into the 1900s almost. In the 1800s, it kind of got to be tamed a little bit by Kaiser and so forth, but these are not easy-going people, these Germanic tribes. And Boniface goes up into this area preaching, and, and he's being attacked all the time. And, and they had a, a big tree there, the Oak of Thor. There's other names for it that in, in certain part of Germany there that was the tree. And and the, the legend that the pagans all there believed, the Germanic people believed that if anybody touched that tree, Thor would send a lightning bolt from heaven and strike them dead on the spot. They wouldn't go near this tree. And old Boniface decides, 
That's a crazy. There's no God named Thor. He takes a hatchet and goes over and cuts that tree down. They all watched. They all came to see it because he told them he's going to do it because they want to see this, this crazy monk get fried. Well, guess what happened? The tree fell over. Now, there's a lot of legends about how that all happened, which way it happened, but the tree fell over and nothing happened to him. And a, a lot of the German pagans were converted to Christ that very day. Many were not, of course. Took a lot more. But eventually, this guy kept doing this kind of thing. They called him an iconoclast. That's what his, the definition of what he would be. An iconoclast means a breaker of idols, destroyer of idols. Icono, icon is an idol. And, and he set the world on fire by going over, not in a cloister, in a, in a hillside somewhere, but going out to where the pagans were and confronting their error. Now, these are the two options that we have as Christians today, how we're going to approach the problem that we have. And I'm going to outline some of the problem we got in just a minute, if I can get there quick enough. But I want to go back to the Bible because this story reminded me, and I heard about this Boniface, it reminded me of a story in the Bible of Gideon. You know this story in Judges? Did you think about that? Anybody think about that? This is a story of Gideon. At the time of the judge, this part of the Judges, the people of, of Israel are being, being tortured and, and uh, oppressed by the Midianites, a tribe, a band of brutal um, people in that area that would come in every year after they tried to grow their crops. They'd come in and pillage and rape and take the women and they'd get all the, and so they kept Israel poor. And they were, they were just continually, since they weren't following God, God wasn't blessing them. But he did bless them in this way. He sent a man named Gideon to them. They didn't, even Gideon didn't know it. But he was the man. God said, I want you to go out here and I want you to confront these people. I'm paraphrasing. And, and Gideon was hiding he, he had taken his crops into a wine press where he couldn't be seen. He was trying to process them in there because the, he was afraid the Midianites would see them and come and steal them. So he's hiding. God says, you need to go do what I want you to do. Well, show me this is going to work. So God gives him a sign, and he believes the sign. You can read the story in, 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 in Judges 6 there. And so it came to pass the same night, verse 25. This is the way God does things that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. I want you to go, your father's a big shot in this town, and all these other Israelites follow your father, and your father has an altar to Baal. Gideon, go take that bull and pull that thing down to the ground and cut down the wooden image that's beside it. And build an altar to the Lord, to Jehovah, your God, on top of the rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood and the image which you shall cut down. So the, the, the reward of the bull for pulling this down was to get cut in pieces and burnt. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, too much to do it by day, he did it by night. He was still afraid of these people. He's going to go cut down the oak of Thor, going to go pull down this altar. He don't know what's going to happen to him if he does this. And he's probably right to think this. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was an altar altar of Baal torn down. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. 
And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said to Gideon, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men in the city came to Joash, the father, and said, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. And therefore on that day, he, they called him Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Now, th- this is a man right here, even though he was afraid. Gideon tore down the altar. And his father's an interesting character because his father says, his father learned something when his son tore down the altar. Baal didn't strike him dead. In fact, the men came and said, we want to hurt him. And he says, well, if Baal's a god, why can't God take care of, why can't Baal take care of himself? So here's the same story in the Bible almost, isn't it? What kind of person are we? We're going to be hiding in caves or we're going to go cut down altars? That's the question before us sometimes. Hiding in caves, cutting down altars, iconoclasts. And so there is this option in the Bible. And I'm, I'm unclear. I have to tell you, I'm unclear exactly what's the right thing to do sometimes about this. And I do, I will say that it isn't this sermon, but I will say this. Being a Christian is not about being a nice guy. That seems to be the modern conception among many of my own brethren. That being a Christian, especially being a preacher, is about being a nice guy so that you don't ever say anything that nobody likes. That you might offend someone, meaning that not offend in the sense of keep them from Christ. They're not in Christ already, but offend meaning they won't like it and they will get mad at you. I have to tell you people something. They're already mad at us. If you're living a righteous life, a lot of people you know already don't like you. Now, a lot of your friends do. I find the truth is, in some ways, there's a, a, a lot of people are religious. I meet them day to day, going, doing this and that and the other. And I meet people, when I talk to them, I find out as I talk to them that they have spiritual interests. Their spiritual interest is just below the surface. On the outside, they show you a secular coldness. On the inside, they, they love the Lord Jesus Christ in their own way. I find this wherever I go. But it certainly isn't unanimous. But I'll tell you what, the powerful people of our society, the people that call the shots, because I'm dealing with ordinary people, you and me, the people that call the shots don't have any sympathy for Christianity anymore. It's very hated. But the Bible does say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's read this with me. It's kind of a mixed, it's kind of a mixed bag here. These Corinthians were in one of the most secular, worldly, godless cities in the ancient, in the ancient world. They had a temple there, as you know, with a thousand priestesses where you could go in there. They were prostitutes. You go in there and you worship the gods of the Corinthians by having sex with these prostitutes and giving them gifts. That's how you worship these gods in that city. The men did this and the women did this too. Because they were filled with, that city was filled with homosexuals of every kind. And they all, they worshiped their gods this way. So it wasn't just that they were practicing this in some nightclub. This was part of their religion in that city. I'm not sure we've gotten there yet quite, have we? Almost. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? There's no connection you have with these people. 
if you're a Christian. You can't have a connection with them because there is no connection. What accord has Christ with Belial? That's another name for the the devil. And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? We could spend lots of time on those verses, but we're not going to. But what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of God, of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. That's the people. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come ye out from among them and be you separate, says the Lord. And do not touch that which is unclean and I will receive you. I'll be a father. Now, does this sound like Paul is telling the Corinthians, you need to be separate. You need to go in your own little place and stay away from these people and practice the Benedict option. Go away and separate yourselves. Sounds like it, doesn't it? Makes you think. Maybe that's the right way to do it. And I obviously I believe these passage. I believe this passage. I, I believe that we should understand what it means that there is time and place, and and it might be a big one to just simply separate from the society that you live in and from the culture around you as much as you possibly can. I can give you examples of what I was told growing up is what the right way to live was. I mean, my relatives thought it was a sin for women to wear makeup. Only French whores wore makeup and ho- and stockings and things like that. There's some truth in that. That's coming from the brother or the grandfather who told me about these modern girls. You heard me say this before. He said, boy, before you bury one of these girls today, you don't, you better take her out in the backyard and hose her down. Make sure you know what you're getting. She's covering so much makeup, you don't know what you're getting if you don't hose her down. Is there any truth in that? You better believe it. I've done enough marriage counseling to know a lot of people didn't hose down that wife enough before they married her. Now they're in a real pickle. Same thing goes the other way. But this is the way that, that lipstick, Christian women didn't wear lipstick for crying out loud. French whores wore lipstick. That's the way it was. Is there truth in that? Do you think we need to separate ourselves from this godless society, the way they think and the way they dress, the way the women dress? I see Christian women dress and I'm just appalled. And you can say, well, that's your problem. You're full of lust. That that could be. But I do know that the Bible says that we're to dress decently and modestly as befits women professing godliness. So that doesn't matter what's in my heart. It's what's in your heart. Are you dressing like a woman who professes godliness or one that professes whatever the world is saying. You gotta think about that. Men need to, need, need to not look upon people with, women with lust in their heart. The Bible is clear about this. So we need to separate ourselves from this. And yet most of our entertainment is built around that, that men like to look in lust and women like to display it. It's built on that, those premises. And we just join right in with them. Right in with it as Christians, like it never even, we never, and you know, it's one thing if you thought about it and you made a judgment about something, we can disagree about that. But the problem that I have is that we're not even thinking about what we should be doing with these things. We're just gobbling it all down. Now the other, there's another option here, the option of confrontation. Paul says, for though we, this is 2 Corinthians chapter, now same, same church, Another letter to the same church of Corinth. That's the interesting part about it. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're walking in the flesh. We're humans walking around. We don't have, we're not picking up swords and maces and axes and guns and killing people to get our way. 
for the weapons of our warfare, and, and we must... We must, by necessary inference, be engaged in war. That's the per, that's the only conclusion you can come to from reading this whole letter from the Holy Spirit here, that Christianity is a war with the culture around it. Because our warfare is not carnal, but mighty in God, in God for pulling down strongholds. Strongholds of who? Of what? Of worldly thinking. And the devil's influence in society of those people that... We know and love sometimes. It's a mighty for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Do you think that the elites of our society are exalting themselves against the knowledge of God all around us every day? That's, that's what their game is. That's exactly what they're doing. There is no God but science and the government. And do whatever you want. That's the only God that they know to worship. Bringing every thought into the captivity of the obedience of Christ. And he says, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's just make an application. I'm going to go off on another whole track and you may not follow me here. You don't have to follow me here. But this is part of what spurred all this. I wrote this on Facebook in 2018. I'm such a prophet. If five-year-olds are capable of giving consent to change their gender or sex, and they are, and are they not also capable of giving consent to have sex itself, even with adults? Stop and think about that for a moment. We're being told that parents should not be informed about kids wanting to do gender change surgeries and all this stuff because they can give consent for that and for abortions before they're old, but yet we're somehow saying it's they can't have sex with adults. If you can give your consent to change your gender, you can't give your consent to have sex with who you want to? That's absurd. If you can do one, you can do the other. Now, think about what I'm, where I'm going to go with this. You don't know yet. Now, this is especially true since we have seen, see, we seem to decide as a civilization that consent is the only absolute moral standard. I fear this is a very slippery slope that we have been on for a long time, but I may be wrong. Well, guess what? Uh-uh, I wasn't wrong at all. I was not wrong about this. I wrote, I thought this a long time before that. I wrote it on Facebook and got flack for it then, being an overreactionary Christian. Guess where we are today? Half the state is up in arms because they want to teach kindergartners about having uh, their gender changes and anal sex. Half the state's upset about this. All the, all the important people at Disney. Disney! I couldn't wait to church be over on Sunday night when I was seven years old because I was going to come home and my dad had bought a color TV and we could watch the fireworks in color. The wonderful world of Disney. Yep, it's a wonderful world, all right. Did you, did any of you see the video clips that were taken from a Zoom meeting of Disney executives called the Di- the Disney executives called a meeting in direct response to Florida passing this bill that school teachers can't teach your children about gender change surgeries. They called a special meeting from California and from all over the country, and these executives met, and somebody leaked the video in which these top executives of Disney says, I try to work queerness into everything I can. Have for years, nobody said a word about it. I've been trying to work queerness into everything I can. We're going to make sure that 50% of all of our characters from now on are gay or lesbian or, or trans. That's what they've been saying 
This is what Disney is now. That's why they objected to a law that says school teachers can't teach kindergartners about who they ought to have sex with. They can have sex with anybody if they want to. Why? Well, because of what I said. That they really want to get down to pedophilia. The next big road that's going to be crossed is sex with children. We thought sex with men was bad enough, men with men. Then we thought getting married was bad enough, and oh, it'll never happen. Oh yeah, it happened. That's a slippery slope, all right. Now we're on that slippery slope where what's being discussed is sex with children. So if a child can give consent to sex change surgery, why can't a child give consent to have sex with an adult? How how is consent developed? How do you develop consent in people? Education. You have to talk to the person. You have to educate people. Then they give consent. Before I sign stuff, I want to know what's in the contract. You have to educate me. What's being done today in our schools in Disney and on Disney? Education. So that these kids can be said later. And it's already being said. It's already being said. Most of us are just ignorant about it. And the trouble is the Disney people just said the quiet part out loud in this video. It's education. You know, the 1972 gay rights platform called for the repeal of all laws governing the age of sexual consent. The gay gay and lesbian lobby has been after this for over a generation. Since I was in high school, they've been after this change of consent. It just takes a long time to move something like that. But guess what, people? They're moving it. And Christians are still sitting in the monastery I'll give, I'm going to get an example you don't like, but I made a screenshot this week of a tweet I got. Every student deserves to feel safe and welcome in the classroom. Our LGBTQ plus youth deserve to be affirmed and accepted just as they are. Who's he talking about here? This is in response to the Florida law that says you can't educate kindergartners about this stuff. My administration will continue to fight for dignity and opportunity for every student and family in Florida and around the country. So, there have to be, accept- and what they mean by accepted as they are, you have to understand, a whole lot of these kids are gay and lesbian, they say. Transsexual, they just don't know it yet. We have to educate them. What I want to know, what's the plus? I see this plus added here. I'll tell you what I think the plus is. The plus is what we call pedophilia. That's the plus. Can't say that quiet part out loud, though. That's the plus. There's not many other places to go than this letter, this alphabet soup. But the plus involves sex with children. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I went through my, just looked on my, I didn't look anywhere. I just looked at what I already had on my computer yesterday or day before. These are just a few of the headlines I found on my computer of stuff I've saved over the last few years. Defending pedophilia is the logical conclusion of queer theory. And that's what Disney's promoting, queer theory. They said so in their little bit dignity. Academics speak out for the old Dominion professor put on leave after defending pedophiles. He got reinstated. Could someone explain how we tell the incestuous New York couple that they can't marry? Mother and a, mother and a son. British academics, they say pedophilia is, a, is natural and normal for males. 
Many researchers, another headline, taking a different view of pedophilia, the L.A. Times, not some backwoods paper somewhere. New York Times demands equality for pedophiles. That's their capitalization. Not all pedophiles have mental disorder, another headline. Pedophiles call for the same rights as homosexuals. That's a big one right there. See this whole thing. You follow the logic of two men ought to be able to do whatever they can send in bed and everybody ought to approve of it. You follow that logic where you get, where you, you have to to eventually attack consent. Well, what do you think we're doing by educating five-year-olds about this? We're creating consent. We're telling these kids you can consent to this and you should consent to this. Pedophiles running with same-sex lobbies playbook. Pedophiles in NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, been around a long time, they're running with the same playbook. Pedophilia is a fate, not a choice. Now that's just a few of the headlines you can find out there all over the place, more and more every year. This is where the plus is going. So which way? I got a lot more to say about that. So which way does the salt and light react? Should you withdraw and hold on? Is that what come out from among them be separate means? Just withdraw? Or should we pull down strongholds and cast down arguments? And we should go after every high thing, every oak of Thor, every altar of Baal that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring every thought into captivity of the obedience of Christ. That's a good question, isn't it? Well, we're way past time, but I want to close, go back, circle back. As I say, circle back to the beginning. Jesus says, blessed are those. I don't know the answer to that exactly. But I know that it's time for people to be aware of what's actually happening. Now, none, none of the things that I said a moment ago, by the way, were meant to degrade or attack any homosexual or the person, and, and I've known pedophiles, and I know that they're human beings, and I know what's going on with them, and it's a case of of, a, of actual sympathy on my part to a large degree of the fate of this person. I, I understand that, so it's not meant to just hurt and attack and deride, insult people that go to funerals of soldiers and fly flags and say God hates fags and all that. That's despicable. That's not what this sermon's about, but it is about resisting the social changes that will destroy people's lives. Okay. Blessed are the persecuted, Jesus says, for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you, they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And that's what's going to happen to you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for yours is the king, your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, if you don't have any flavor, you're weak and tasteless, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The nice guy Christianity is oftentimes worthless in the face of real, real enemies of Christ. Real enemies to your own family sometimes. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. For men do not Light a lamp put under a bushel, a basket, but they put on a lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men. They may see your good works, not your wicked, evil work, but your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, that's all I got to say and a little more, I suppose.
But I want you to think about the choices that we have to make here. I don't know the exact answer, but I do know it's high time for people to think about what the answer might be. I think sometimes it's best to be out alone by yourself, isolate your family, yourself, your friends, but it's also sometimes somebody's got to take the axe and go out and find that oak and cut it down. Thank you for listening. We're going to sing this song Gary selected here, number uh, uh, 380, just as I am. Come to Jesus just as you are. You'll, you'll, you'll be a sinner. He knows that. You know that. That's what's expected. You can change. God will help you change. You don't do it by yourself. God will forgive you, cleanse you, help you to change. So this morning, if we can help you by baptizing you to Christ because of your belief in him and your your willingness to confess his name before men and take a stand, we can help you become a Christian today if that's your desire. You come right to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.